In this episode, we talk about our new jobs. We talk a lot about food and about God. It's been a while, but we're back and we're so happy to be chatting again. We're working gals. If you haven't heard us in your ears for a while, it's because we've been busy working and vacationing, but here we are. We've missed you and we hope you enjoy. And we hope you missed us too. <laughs> no, I know they Every missed so us. Funny. I get way too corny. I get way too corny in these intros. It's, it's so bad. Hey, it's not a good intro if it's not corny. Here we are. How are you? It's been forever. It's been a while. I'm good. Um, I'm just enjoying enjoying summer, enjoying the nice weather, except for today where it's raining. And oh. what about you? How's London? Ugh, London is rainy and cold and annoying. No. Yeah, I literally have probably had like three days of sun since I moved back three no. weeks ago. Yeah, so it's not been nice but i mean everything else about it has been lovely like everything mm-hmm. has been fantastic besides the weather so i can't complain tell us more about your new job and how it's going it's going well i'm working in a day treatment center for people with eating disorders and yeah i'm learning a lot it's quite tiring cuz i work 10 hours um a day Oof, luckily only four days a week, but you know, Mm -hmm. hefty, hefty days, but everyone is, yeah, the best part about working in, yeah, the best part about working in mental health though is that everyone is an angel and like so Mm -hmm. caring and Mm -hmm. just, yeah, I feel so looked after and super supported. Wait, I want to know more about what is the team of clinicians like? Who do you work with? uh just how how is life as a as a practitioner yeah it's so I'm not I wouldn't really call myself a practitioner but I mean I guess kind of basically my role is very much like super client facing with them Mm -hmm. all the time basically the day in the life of the clients is like they come in they check in they do an emotional check-in and they have a snack and then they mm-hmm. have therapy group and then they have breaks in between then they have lunch then they have another group then they have snack and then they have another group and then they have dinner and then they go so it's a very like mm-hmm. food heavy day especially for people yeah. who struggle with food it's a long day for them and then in between mm-hmm. that the team they have like one-on-one sessions with either therapists or dietitians or um, Mm -hmm. occupational therapists or even just with us um, who kind of serve as their point of contact Mm -hmm. Um, I was gonna say other things but yeah and everyone works super closely to get like the whole team is very close so I interact with like I said therapists Mm -hmm. dietitians OTs Mm -hmm. um and everyone, oh, there's even like somatic therapists. There's a whole, oh, very cool. whole range of professionals in the building, which That's is awesome. super, super interesting. There's family therapists. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's it's interesting. And are patients all in a group? Like, do you have um, all age ranges of patients? Do you see, like, do you split them up by groups of, uh, like, who came in at what time? Or I'm, I'm just curious of, of how, how the organization of something like this looks because it's, uh, I don't know what, like, inpatient or, I mean, this is outpatient, but I don't know what uh, recovery centers like this look like. So I'm, I'm just so curious. Ours is very unique um, because one, you don't need a formal diagnosis. It's mm. just if you're struggling, you can come get help. Two, mm. it's separated, not in an, there's no rhyme or reason for the different groups we have. It's just simply to navigate mm. timetables. And we accept mm. people from the age of 16 up. And mm. also, we're not a crisis center and we don't accept people who are at high risk who we feel Mm -hmm. um need to be seen and looked after all hours of the day so that's another thing that if someone is presenting with high risk we will refer them to a different service and tell them when you when your risk lowers a little bit you can come back Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's it's very specific work that's done at this center Mm -hmm especially because we place a lot of value on autonomy. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to trust that they're safe and definitely care of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that it's not super difficult for the clients to work through just that they, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they feel capable of looking after themselves in the evenings and on weekends. Exactly. Yeah, so that's me. That's so exciting, though. It's 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 really exciting that you you get to really dive in and uh, and start like putting what you've been studying for a long time finally like into practice. Yeah, it's definitely a learning curve. Let me tell you, um, it's not easy transitioning from academia into clinical work, but it's super rewarding, and I feel no, very for sure passionately about it. But. Tell, I'm okay, curious as well. <laughs> I'm just eager to ask you these questions too. Okay, okay. Uh, we'll talk about we'll talk about me, and then and then we'll go we'll go back. But um, okay, yeah. So basically, my um, my new job. I'm working in copywriting still, uh, just at an agency where I'm working with a lot of different um, brands who don't have as much in-house creative team. So they kind of outsource any creative projects to an agency like mine. And we work with them to develop either sort of videos or LinkedIn campaigns or blog posts. I mean, it really runs the gamut. Um, My favorite project as of the moment or like my favorite client is actually um, basically like a branch of the government i guess where they're trying to um sort of export not really export i guess um how do i how do i i i struggle so much with describing what it is but basically yeah they're trying to promote Mm. business and cuisine and fabrication and healthcare from france across the globe so they attend wow. um let's say the the taste 
France, which is their cuisine um, branch. They'll go to all of these different food expos across the world and they'll talk about what kind of foods France exports and why, um, you know, people should be more interested in the French culinary industry. Uh, Same with like French tech, um, why you should work for French tech companies or why you should open an office in France. Um, So it all falls under this big category of business France. Uh, And so, yeah, that's who I'm, that's who I'm working with. And I am the English copywriter for all of this stuff. So it's really exciting. I get to kind of uh, have this big team of, of people from all different branches as clients. Um, And then my agency just works with all of them to, develop either flyers or you know slide decks or you know website content any sort of creative stuff so that's what my day looks like and that's so interesting is there specific types of clients that you guys work with or is it really just anyone who approaches you it's kind of like I would say it's mostly b2b so it's you know Mm. consulting firms um obviously this like this uh business france or banks um so wow. a lot of places like you know that that don't particularly have as much of a social media strategy because that's not that really their specialty so right. they they come to the specialists very cool very cool yeah. are you enjoying that's... it i am i'm learning a lot i'm mm-hmm. like it's it's a bit stressful because it's also my my office is all French people and me (laughs) so I'm I'm learning I'm learning a lot on the job I'm practicing French a lot on the job and Mm. I have big time imposter syndrome every day (laughs) okay I do as well other than that it's great (laughs) Yeah, uh, I, it's it's hard. It's hard starting a new job. It's like impossible to feel like you're already an expert, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Actually, it's mm-hmm. funny because this morning I was looking on Instagram and this girl who I met when I was in, living in France, she moved to Toulouse without knowing a single word in French. And Damn. she um like just was learning as we were there and now mm-hmm. she lives in Paris with her boyfriend and like all of her Instagram is in French and I was like wow genuinely I remember wow when she, she really committed order a coffee yeah she did commit <laughs> um but she committed to the I bit. draw inspo from her because she just spoke she literally mm-hmm. just spoke and that's how she yeah. learned that's how that's how you have to learn um circling back to you uh I'm curious, especially because you did a lot of research, I would say, in your master's degree specifically on anxiety. And I feel like anxiety and eating disorders must have a ton of comorbidity. So I'm curious Mm. how your training kind of helped inform you in your job. Ah, good question. Well, okay. Um, Basically eating disorders are super misunderstood. They're one of the most misunderstood psychological disorders, in my opinion, maybe on Mm -hmm. par with like psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. most people think that an eating disorder is purely about physical image. 
and most Mm -hmm. people think that eating disorders are like is rely heavily on societal influence and societal pressures for women to be thin to look a certain Mm -hmm. way truth of the matter is most eating disorders have nothing to do with that most eating Mm -hmm. disorders are people using food as a means to feel in control or cope Mm -hmm. with stress anxiety trauma depression Mm -hmm. at work we've learned or at work they say that the eating disorder is never the issue it is a symptom and so the way that our job works is to like get to the root of the issue and to understand this person as a whole and not just treat their disordered eating habits Mm -hmm. or their relationship with food but to really understand them and have therapy for them as a whole as a whole person And so I think the thing is, is like throughout my undergrad and my master's, I've learned the tenets of therapy. I've learned that it's important to like lean forward to seem engaging or like your tone of voice Mm -hmm. is important. And the way to phrase your responses to someone's emotional disclosure of like, I hear that you're saying this, that sounds really difficult, like how to validate and how to Mm -hmm. like, I know all of these things, like 100%. Mm -hmm. But it's so hard when you're one-on-one with someone and they're like, that meal was really difficult for me because it brought up this, that, and the other Mm -hmm. to be like, Mm -hmm. I hear you and I see you. It's so, especially initially, I feel, I don't feel intimidated by those spaces, but I get a bit nervous because I care about saying the right thing and I know that I'm I know what to say it's just hard to remember it in that moment definitely and it's it's hard like I I can't imagine the stress on truly any healthcare provider because when it's someone else's well-being that's in your hands it it's just so much more tension that you have to perform well at your job you know when it's like someone's expectations and letting them down okay you know we all go through letdowns but I think I I really admire people who are in the healthcare field because it's just got to be enormously important you know to do your job well and so I think hopefully with time you're you're going to get like accustomed to it it's going to be kind of second nature but starting out I can't even imagine like how difficult it must be to enter those spaces and be like wow someone else's recovery is not entirely on your shoulders but like is is partially you know impacted by the way that I go about treatment with them so yeah props to you no thank you so much for saying that because it's so true and it's something that Mm. I've felt very heavily over the past two weeks and I've felt Mm -hmm. that immense pressure and that's played into my imposter syndrome but Mm -hmm. at the end of last week I had to talk with my manager Mm -hmm. and he was basically like you don't need to prove yourself to us we Mm -hmm. have we hire very specifically and we saw in you what we need here oh that's amazing all the all the skills that you need to grow into this role we can teach you and we Mm -hmm. 100% know that you will learn that was very reassuring and it also kind of opened my eyes to like working as a team and being open and just kind of being collaborative 
takes the mm-hmm. pressure off immensely. Yeah. And yeah, for um, sure. basically had, I'm having to work towards not feeling like it's entirely my responsibility to mm-hmm. cure someone. Oh, um, of course. Of course. So it, I 100% felt that way over the past two weeks being like, this is huge. And I mm-hmm. would tell my boyfriend, like, someone could die because of something that I said. Um, and now I've kind of de-escalated that to, like, that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. They have exactly. so much more yeah. support than just me. Um, yeah, you're but, part of their care, but you're not the sole person responsible for it. Yeah. We give them so much support, but at the end of the day, it's their decision what they do with their lives. Completely. Completely. And yeah. Yeah. So just like little things have happened where I'm like, okay, the pressure is off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The the one thing I'm really curious about is because there's so many um, facets to what goes into any sort of mental disorder or syndrome. And when I was learning about eating disorders in college, I think one of the interesting things was that there is kind of a theory or, or line of thinking that the way that eating disorders work in the brain is not dissimilar from addiction, wherein mm. the practices that you have, whether it's like body checking, whether it's um, the control that you have around your meal, it kind of activates uh sort of a pathway in your brain that allows you to like relax. Like you can only relax once you know that your meal has um, no saturated fats in it or whatever, you know, just giving examples. And so it's in a way similar to addiction because you become addicted to those patterns. And I'm so curious if that like informs any of the way that you guys practice at your, at your clinic, or if there's any, sort of similarities with recovery from eating disorder and recovery from addiction. Yeah, I I think so. I don't know if I'm knowledgeable enough yet to answer that specifically, but fair enough. Fair um, enough. I know that psychoeducation is huge in what mm-hmm. we do because that helps rewrite those neural circuits of yeah, or just honestly learned behaviors of this is bad for me. And a lot of people mm-hmm. do think that way of like too much food is bad, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And like it is true that society does have influence on eating disorders mm-hmm. and people kind of take that and run with it in a sense. Yeah. Um, I was talking to one of my friend's parents who is an, who, who was an eating disorder therapist and she mm-hmm. was saying too that a lot of it comes from like an emotional place as well in Mm. people's emotional development they might have felt neglected and found comfort in food and that kind Mm -hmm. of throws them off for the rest of their lives so therapy is integral in kind of unwriting that in a way exactly and psychedelics have also been massive in Mm -hmm. eating disorder because um professor david nutt or dr david nutt I think that's his name. Um, He's huge in the psychedelic space. And Mm -hmm. um, he basically describes psychedelics as restoring your brain to a childlike state in terms of the neuronal and the circuits 
and the neurons and the pathways and everything. Mm-hmm. So if your eating disorder has roots in childhood, psychedelics are great for accessing that state and kind of reprocessing it slowly and rebuilding. Totally. Obviously, we don't do anything with psychedelics at my day center, but it would be cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be cool if we did. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that that's like something that's probably going to be in the future. Like, I think we're going to be seeing the practical applications of whether it's MDMA therapy or ketamine therapy or psilocybin. Like, I I feel like those are kind of we're we're on like the brink of of using them as in in practical applications. And I feel like it's probably only a matter of time until we actually see those going into clinical settings. Yeah. It, like normally, you know. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that day, especially, yeah, I think with eating disorders, it's so exciting how revolutionary mm-hmm. they are, but mm-hmm. there's so Definitely. much influence, and I know that today we were going to talk a bit about religion, um, and religion's also, like, another massive influence because it on eating disorders because there's so much that is intertwined with culture, which is intertwined with mm-hmm. food. We had this talk mm-hmm. on Judaism, talking about how Judaism might influence eating disorders because you have this massive family meal on a Friday and you also, mm. there's a lot of fasting involved. And yeah. fasting can yeah, With any religion. I feel like there's so much fasting involved in Christianity, in Islam, like in Buddhism, yeah. like I like any religion, I feel like. And Maybe not any, with, but I feel like a lot of them have dietary restrictions too. So it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. I was going to talk about dietary restrictions of like a lot of religions demonize foods. And mm-hmm. not that that is in, in, not that that is inherently bad. Like mm-hmm. I don't find that me not eating pork is like the worst thing ever. But yeah, yeah. For, for people, who are in recovery and who are trying to learn that no food is bad. Mm -hmm. Like there's no Mm -hmm. to unlearn food rules. How can you do that when you have something so prevalent in your life and in your community telling you, well, yeah, actually like you have to eat kosher. You can't eat meat and cheese together. Yeah. That's, that is crazy. Like I I think it's, um, I, I don't know anything about what, what kosher food is like or, or really much about any fasting, but I find it, yeah, really interesting when people talk about their practical lived experiences of having eating disorders. You hear this idea of like, I don't know if it's called like danger foods or like, um, fear food. do you know what I'm talking? Fear yeah. food. Yes. Sorry. Not danger food. Fear no, food. Okay. And it's, I find it to be like, of course people have fear foods. Like if it's mm-hmm. not self-imposed, it's imposed by what you grew up with or it's imposed by your community's practice. Like, I, I think it's just way more common than uncommon to have fear foods. And I think that that leads me. I, I'm just like going on tangents at this point. Okay. But yeah, no, I, I find it. it to be like the whole idea about eating disorder recovery. One of the things that I think must be so difficult is that we're in a culture that so many people have disordered practices around eating Mm -hmm. that wouldn't necessarily fall into like a clinical category but it's Mm -hmm. just completely normalized that it's like we demonize certain foods that we um you know have basically like an orthorexic culture you know what i mean it's just 
I find it really difficult to get away from like even just like fitness influencers. I don't know. It, it's 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 just a multifaceted you're you're having to fend off attacks at every angle. So it's yeah. really even, you're fighting the good fight. <laughs> even to the point where we have regimented meals. Like we can't mm-hmm, always mm-hmm. just eat when we're hungry. Yeah. It, like there's so much influence. And when you're susceptible to mm-hmm. coping with stress in that way or coping with trauma or just like having this maladaptive coping mechanism, it, you truly yeah. are fending off attacks. And even exactly. with myself over the past two weeks, mm-hmm. I have had to challenge so many of my own thoughts. Like I mm. have had to really, I, I have a, good relationship with most foods but Mm -hmm. um with sugar I've always just had this mentality from a young age of like too much sugar is bad we all have yeah sugar is the devil yeah 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 but I've had to eat a lot of sugar at my job um Mm -hmm. because we eat with the clients like I never used to be able or think that it was okay to eat an entire chocolate bar but I've had to do, mm. I've had to sit in front of people <laughs> who are having oh like a like a small cookie or a piece of fruit and eat an entire chocolate yeah. bar because that's what my job requires. And yeah, it's just like and then I like I don't know. I I it's interesting. And I think yeah, you really are fending off attacks from all sides and mm-hmm. it it disordered eating and disordered messages about food are so prevalent in society it's completely it's hard it's really really hard and it like especially in the u.s i don't Mm -hmm. know what it is but i am so much more aware of food when i'm in the u.s than when i'm in the uk Mm. i can imagine and in, in france i feel like it's the same thing like people don't eat because they're trying to be healthy like they eat for pleasure and yeah. the whole idea about like you would eat something because it's like food is fuel that's like such a alien concept to them they're like no you you eat what you want to eat because it makes you happy you know yeah. so it's like a, it's a good influence being here with with people that kind of have that mentality um i and i i always call myself like a food anarchist because (laughs) I really I really hate like even you were talking about like the three regimented meals like I don't believe in that I don't believe that like dessert comes after dinner like my method that's helped my relationship with food is just to have like I make my own rules you know and and more often than not they are kind of chaotic in other people's minds because i just don't follow like a a way of eating that's that's specifically categorized into you know whether it be into categories or or even like you know sometimes i eat vegan sometimes eat vegetarian like i sometimes eat like you know mussels and oysters and you know i i just kind of make my rules up about how i feel in the moment so yeah I know that intuitive eating has is a bit controversial. I don't know. I don't know the mm-hmm. lore. I'll be honest, but I yeah, kind of I mean, saw a few things <laughs> that were like that. But to me, that sounds like 
how your body was meant to be navigated, how hunger mm-hmm. was meant to be navigated mm-hmm. was just like listening to your hunger yeah. cues. It's obviously a bit more challenging for people who struggle with eating disorders, especially people mm-hmm. who have struggled for a long time who no longer have hunger cues. Like, yeah. There's yeah. a lot of times where at meals, people are just sitting and looking for the first five, 10 minutes because Mm-hmm. They don't know if they're hungry and afterwards we'll yeah. come up and we'll talk about it and they'll be like, I didn't feel hungry, but after I took two bites, I realized that I was actually super hungry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is like, it's scary, <laughs> but especially because our, yeah, our society doesn't promote listening to your body. No, and absolutely not. Sucks. Absolutely not. And yeah, yeah, I think, I think, um, I've had to navigate a little bit of like, like stress around hunger cues because when I get really anxious they just disappear entirely you know it's like I I I lost a lot of weight when I moved uh to France because it was like I just wasn't feeling well I wasn't feeling hungry and so coming back to like having normal hunger cues and eating a lot compared to what I was eating then you know it's it's not um it's not always I think intuitive eating gives the impression of being just easy of like, oh, whatever you want, you have. And sometimes it is that easy, but sometimes it's a lot harder. It's like you're interpreting your body's cues when they might be kind of off. So, yeah, I also (laughs) feel like intuitive eating maybe should be relabeled to just intuition because Mm. sometimes intuitively you feel that your body needs food but not Mm -hmm. in but you don't feel hungry which kind of opposes the French perspective but like um someone shared in one of the groups that I was in last week that since starting to eat more and adding food to their meal plan they Mm -hmm. woke up in the morning with more energy and they Mm. felt less hungry throughout the day and just like yeah, I think I was mostly struck by the energy aspect of it and that, yeah, yeah, you might not feel hungry, but do you have a headache? Do you feel sluggish? Mm-hmm. Do you feel foggy? These are all things yeah. that might be remedied with like some toast. Totally. <laughs> or team toast here. <laughs> team toast. Team. I haven't had a good buttered toast in a long time, I'll be honest. What are you I'm- doing wrong, Kimia? I have toast every morning. <laughs> I, well, okay, I have bagels and peanut butter every morning. Oh, that's that's a good alternative. I'll give you that one. I'll give yeah, you that. with some banana good, and actually. some hemp. Yeah, Ooh. it's a good breakfast. Now I want, now I want that. <laughs> um, my intuition is telling me that I need peanut butter toast with hemp and banana. My intuition that is sounds firing. Delicious. Yeah, it's good. I'm a fan. Um, uh, should we go on to our topic because we've been talking so long about not our topic? Yeah, yeah. So we talked. I mean, we talked a bit about religion. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk I a bit more prepare. about it. <laughs> I didn't prepare. We didn't prepare. I feel like we haven't we have enough lived experience with religion that we we don't need notes. The notes are in our heads. I took a whole. I actually took a whole semester on uh, oh. the psychology of religion. But that was five years ago, so I don't remember much. Right. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see what comes up. Um, yeah, well, we'll see what we remember. Let's start with our stances 
on religion maybe Mm, okay my take on religion and some people might disagree with this but i think everyone has a religion i feel like everyone Mm. has something that they almost everyone has something that they want to like evangelize even if it's atheists but like atheism is a religion right because it is what you believe in and generally atheists believe that other people would be better with the knowledge that there is no god right so that's Mm. their belief system maybe religion maybe i'm maybe i'm broadening the idea of a belief system and conflating it with religion but I was going mean, they're kind of synonyms. Yeah. Do you feel like there's anything that distinguishes a belief system from a religion? Well, I would say that it, it depends because uh, I would call what we think of religion as like organized religion. I think that's like a more okay. specific term that when yeah. we think about people going to church or a place of worship or people doing certain practices it usually is associated with an organized religion that is like something with a name that you can associate yourself with a community. Okay. Which then I think is different from like a faith or a belief that often conflates there. There, I feel like there's a lot of terminology and so it's difficult to talk about because everyone has different definitions for those terms. Yeah. I, I think for the purposes, for all intents and purposes, I think that religion and um, belief system are separate. I think belief system Mm -hmm. is more general than religion Mm -hmm. and religion can influence your belief system. I like that. I like that that definition. Um, Okay. But I think that it, it is interesting because it's hard to create a distinction when you have, when you say religious people versus non-religious people and i think that what that means is that people some people have an organized religion some people do not have an organized religion but all people have a belief system does that make sense yes um that's my my method of thinking about it i do agree (laughs) i should pull up my notes from my psychology of religion I thought that was such an inter- an interesting class. Like that was probably one of my favorite classes that I took at Oxford because okay, I we talked about gender and religion. We talked about prayer. We talked about Freud. We talked about mm. religious conversion. And then I talked for my for my final essay, I'm really interested in um, what people would call cults or um, new religious movements. So I did a whole cults? essay on a like comparative cult uh, essay, Ooh. which was really fun. Okay, wait, I'm in, I'm interested by that. Maybe we start mm-hmm. with cults just for fun. Maybe we start with cults. I want yeah, to know if you remember, I watched a really good, um, like docu. Not not like full documentary, but in the docu series that's done by Vox and Netflix, it's like um, blank explained. Do you, have you ever mm. watched that? Yes. It's like different things, like um, 
I think they may have even done like psychedelics explained or yeah. like your your skin explained, you know, types of so, or like sexuality explained. Yeah. And they did one on it was like cults explained and mm. super interesting, super uh, validating of everything that I learned. But I learned actually like a few different things like um, there's lots of different facets to what makes something what we would call a cult and usually when we think about cults versus um religious movements which they are all under the same umbrella like a cult is just a new religious movement um but usually they involve a level of high control so you can think about um let's say people call uh scientology a cult uh, yes. where, whereas the Scientologists would call it a religion. It is their religious practice, but mm. it involves a high level of control wherein people have to kind of pay a lot up front for all the materials. A lot of times they've gotten deeply, deeply invested um, financially. So that's one element of control. Uh, another element of control is that whenever people break away from Scientology, you have to like cut ties, even if it's like families. So mm. controlling their access to... Um, their own community, their own family, that's like another element that would be a high control um, religious movement. And so some people say that religions that we have today that many, many people practice um, that are accepted as religions are just like uh, cult plus time. But I would say if you want to kind of claim the word cult, I, I definitely think that there has to be um, an element of high control where, wherein a person kind of is too far gone to really have contact with the rest of the world. Um, and then, you know, people use that really also very weighty, uh, loaded word of like brainwashed, um, where they say, Oh, someone's brainwashed. It's just because they're too highly involved and highly controlled in a situation that they're, incapable of of kind of escaping really on their own without like community support social resources and a lot of times Mm -hmm. financial resources a lot of times people get into cults and they give all their money to you know a guru or a um or even like it can be even political you know it doesn't even necessarily have to be religion but yeah that's that's cults in a nutshell did you look at what aspects of someone makes them more susceptible to quote brainwashing well that's the thing is that there really isn't one element a lot of times um i i I would say my takeaway from what i've studied with quote-unquote brainwashing with quote-unquote cults or new religious movements is that no Mm. one is fully immune um from getting involved with something that uh, takes control of your life but the less social connection that you have, mm-hmm. the more likely you are to seek it out um, with a particular group. So okay. uh, that's why actually a lot of times you have uh, people kind of evangelizing to people who are new to a city, let's say. Like if if college students or people who don't yet have a lot of social connection, who are kind of outside of their normal community if someone's trying to kind of induct someone into a high control group 
they'll target those people because they know that they're looking for community. And so people who are very open minded, you know, you go to college, you're ready to learn new things. um, You can be very intelligent. uh, And you might see a group that says, oh, come like, uh, you know, be part of our uh, community center or our meditation group or our whatever, whatever, you know, or our political group or any number of things. And you automatically go because it's a shared interest and then it becomes high control, you know? Yeah. So in a way, no one's immune. um, But the people who have less community connection are more susceptible, I would say. Yeah. That's so interesting to go back to one of our previous topics Mm -hmm. and how essential for safety community can be and how exactly vital vital it is that people genuinely it makes them more susceptible people can be so intelligent but craving community Mm -hmm. can kind of draw them into places that they shouldn't be yeah and that's why i think the 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 idea of what is a religion to what is a cult to what is a you know new religious movement there is not really clear boundaries, right? Because you have also religious people that are following, you know, a book that millions of other people might be following, you know, whatever that is, or, or maybe not a book, but a, a practice that millions of other people are following. But you have different levels of, um, of strictness and you have different levels of control. So like people who are deeply within fundamentalism of any religion like every religion has fundamentalists those are just people who have a much much higher level of control uh with their um with their community leader so yeah most religions you have like a a community leader whether that's your pastor or uh rabbi imam you know monk or I, I I don't know what other leaders are called um, <laughs> but you have priest you know you have a, a point of contact that's kind of your authority and right. certain authority members are just there to kind of serve other authority members are really there to control so that's where I think religion can kind of fall into a a, a culty mentality when it's all about how much we can control these people within the confines of the community where, you know, you can't Mm -hmm. have any sort of secular outside influence. That's, that's a high control situation as well. Yeah. Wow. That is, that's interesting. So sorry for dumping all my, all my knowledge on you. No, it's like my, it's my main interest in life. (laughs) No, I asked. It's definitely super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that much about them. But it is wild that like people can just do that to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is that a lot of times, I mean, pretty much all times it's under the guise of offering them something that they offering a a solution to a social ill, you know, which is what uh, talking about things that we've learned about religion that's on the other side where it's like something that can be really community building and helpful and you know good for personal development because I think religion can do all of that as well yeah um I I think that by learning about more religions I've really helped myself like helped myself develop my own worldview and belief system because I 
really curious about what other people believe. And so I think if you have that mentality of like learning, um, I don't think it's bad to have religion be a part of your worldview. Yeah, I agree. I think for a lot of people, it's really helpful and Mm -hmm. allows people to have this peace of mind that not much Mm -hmm. else can bring, which is so powerful. And then I also think that it's extremely dangerous when taken to the extreme, which is something that I've learned from my dad quite a bit Mm -hmm. because my dad grew up in Iran, also went to Catholic Mm -hmm. school basically like very entrenched oh, I didn't know that <laughs> yeah don't know he went for like one year I think um mm-hmm. but um then came to England which is a pretty Christian place basically has just been entrenched in religion for a lot of his life but is not actively religious but believes in God very mm-hmm. very pick and choose which mm-hmm. is good but is also yeah. very anti-organized religion and things that it's caused more damage than good yeah um but i don't know in in the context of what i've learned um it has good and bad as well in Mm -hmm. psychology and in therapy a lot of times people who are very religious will use religion to describe their suffering or describe their disorder Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. or like if they have bipolar disorder and they're in a manic episode they might describe Mm. themselves as like christ-like or Mm -hmm. Mm god-like it's prevalent it's like present in the work and the field which is interesting because for myself who's not very religious and doesn't know that much about religion i anticipate that that's something that i will have to learn how to navigate um (laughs) And just kind of get to the bottom of what that means for them and what value that holds. Mm -hmm. Looking over this PowerPoint. um, Basically, so she gave an example of a woman who... So she gave an example of how you have to navigate religion in a psychological or psychiatric setting very specifically Mm -hmm. and carefully because there was Mm -hmm. this woman who used to report seeing visions of Jesus. And when she had these visions, Mm -hmm. she would kneel and pray wherever she was, even if it was like in, in an unsafe space in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. And the doctors were like, okay, to keep her safe, we have to find a way to take away these visions because she's literally doing, she could get hurt. Um, And so when she took meds that kind of removed these visions, she was super distressed Mm -hmm. because they didn't realize that religion was super important to her. And like seeing these visions and being prompted to pray was vital to her existence, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. which I think is like, again, psychology is so interesting for that because it's so personal. And even though yeah. if I started seeing visions of Jesus, that would be terrifying <laughs> for me. Yeah. Like you I would, would be not... calling a doctor up ASAP. You'd be like, okay, we got it. We got to figure the this out. Please. I do yeah. not want to be seeing Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, I never. And like, you just have to approach every 
client and patient with such openness to whatever it is that they want to experience while still maintaining their safety in mind, it's difficult to juggle. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was kind of what we talked about in our lecture. No, it's really, it's really fascinating. Yeah. And that's, that's another reason why I'm, I'm so fascinated by both psychology and religion because it, I just see each one as something that like you, you can view the world through the, you can view almost anything in the world, almost anything that humans do through a lens of psychology. Right. And then Mm -hmm. you can view the same, like, I mean, think about the way that we study literature, art, even architecture, uh, you know, through the lens of religion because it's so Mm -hmm. influenced by by both human mentality and the reason that we give to our mentality like i think that yeah religion is such a human thing because we're the we're the only species that can reason and so like of course we're going to assign meaning and reason to things uh yeah whether that's you know through something organized whether that's through like a faith system or um you know just creating a perspective that allows us to make reason out of our world you know so it just it it's it's really really interesting to me i feel like there's so many things to study within religion i'm i kind of am tempted at times like go back for another master's and like go to divinity school and learn all about that because yeah, I think it would be fun. Uh, I know, I know a lot of like. I think a lot of the misconception I think about divinity school is that it's for people who are really religious. But I know a lot of atheists who go to divinity school. I mean, not a lot, but I, I definitely know that there. Yeah, there is plenty of atheists who go to divinity school because it, you don't have to be religious to see the impact of religion on yeah. the entire world. You know. I I would also argue that like not being religious kind of amplifies the impact or like amplifies mm-hmm. the impact that you see um cuz yeah. you yeah. have less of a personal involvement. Yeah. One thing that I find interesting if we're going to talk about like trends and like where we are in the year of <laughs> in the year of our Lord Jesus 2023. <laughs> um <laughs> uh we I, I see a lot more conversion happening and I use conversion in the broadest sense of um, when I studied religion, we talked about conversion as being anything where you make a large departure from the religion that you were brought up in to what mm. you practice in the day to day. And yeah. I think a lot of the literature, like from all time up into like probably the early 2000s, conversion rates were very low like people really kind of stuck with their religion they identified with the same religion that they were brought up in it Mm -hmm. it was really like below 10 percent or something like that like crazy and now i think so many people are dropping religion as or dropping like organized religion or their identity as being religious from um considering like how many millennia of years that people maintained the same religion that they were brought up in and i'm really like i'm really curious about that i i'm so interested in what we're replacing 
religion with because I think that there if you if you remove religion there is a vacuum and I think a lot of times the way that we find community going back to community is is just through different means so religion as the method of community has been changed and so we have different methods of community therefore a lot of times people don't need their religion to be their community does that make sense yeah and as you were speaking i was kind of wondering how many of those people or what percentage of those people were women or other marginalized groups who Mm -hmm, maybe mm -hmm. previously had no choice but to find community in religion but now are able to go to university or maybe it's Mm -hmm. the expansion of cosmopolitan centers or of yeah like big cities um Mm -hmm. maybe people just moving to big cities and being able to find community in other things or Mm -hmm. just kind of religion being decentralized from our society i don't know i feel like that's maybe the rise of consumerism (laughs) and Mm -hmm. oh um, completely completely i don't know i feel like there's a lot of influence yeah i also wonder like the effect that age has on religion i i'm when i'm looking through my notes i realized i did we did a week on age and i literally don't remember a thing (laughs) about what i found but you know you hear like uh, you know people kind of becoming more religious as they grow older and i Mm -hmm. think that it's the same thing where when i when i was in um when i was studying memory like in the memory lab at scripps we looked at how people become they they remember more positive things as they grow older like the the negative things they just their brain is like not equipped to keep that or like not primed to keep negative things um and i would assume that it's it's true that people become if they are religious they become more religious as they grow older just because you get closer to death um but i'm 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 gonna look at what i (laughs) wrote about uh i think a lot of it has to do with like um oh actually what i wrote about was a lot um regarding children's religiosity and so children being the most like being the most impressionable as you're young when you're young is what leads a lot of people to become religious in the first place because you know you kind of just adopt without uh the critical th- thinking skills of an adult yeah. so that's why a lot of people like put their kids in christian school like i was you know <laughs> like just to kind yeah. of hammer in like this is this is the worldview that you have um and it's also when when people like kind of start to question like when you get to be an older child or adolescent you start to really develop those critical thinking skills and and start to ask yourself like what do i believe so yeah yeah, those don't have a ton of findings but just have a lot of different theories um i don't know if we have time to dive into this but i also would be interested in thinking about the intersection of religion and trauma because i know Mm. that a lot of people who grew up religious find it really hard 
and difficult to navigate when they grow up and some Mm -hmm. have had really terrible experiences and are really really hurt by religion exactly and that's just another thing another reason why i personally am not the most fond of organized religion yeah yeah suffice it to say you're not going to be raising kids in a in a fundamentalist religion (laughs) no i won't but you know if my kid comes to me and is like you know what i'm adopting the tenets of this that and the other i'll i'll let them discover it because i'm not against it i just Mm -hmm. i'm against it in specific instances i suppose yeah definitely definitely (laughs) We should ha- we'll we'll have a part. I think we should have a part two, like religion part two, since we we didn't really get to dive fully into it today. Yeah, I, there's so much to say, and we kind of mm-hmm. ended up doing the majority on eating disorders, which I was so happy to do. Um, but <laughs> exactly. next time we'll come more prepared, and have we're gonna have more discussion. notes, more religiosity, <laughs> more God, <laughs> more God. <laughs> Stay tuned for more God. My my personal religion is eating toast every single morning. Toast yeah. with some good butter. That is <sighs> that is holy to me. Oh, I I'm I'm a follower. You I'm converting to toast. <laughs>